Okay, today I'm going to be reacting to a very unusual and, in, in my opinion, uh, fresh and intriguing um, theological idea that um, I recently heard about on Paul Vanderclay's uh, podcast slash YouTube channel. He was interviewing uh, a guy named Weston Shaper, who was talking about an idea that he developed with his dad called Fallen Earth Creationism. And um, you're going to see um, throughout um, this episode, throughout the exposition of this idea, that it's definitely a long shot. There are definitely many aspects of it which listeners will find implausible or better explained by you know already existing theories. But the reasons why I'm interested in this idea... <sighs> They go beyond the content of fallen earth creationism itself. To me, this idea is an example of, of innovative theology, theology that opens the door to um, interesting questions that transcend the stale and predictable content that theological uh, discussion usually circles around. And I'm not trying to knock mainstream theology too much, but it's a very old game. So, you know, to a certain extent, the old adage is true that there's nothing new under the sun. So in order to lay this idea out, um, I thought I would um, play the same video that I first listened to and then react to it along the way. First, though, so that you aren't uh, too long in the dark um, about the actual content um, or thesis of, of fallen earth creationism. I'd like to read the abstract um, written by Weston Shaper himself um, on his website, fallenearthforum.com. Okay, so the webpage is fallenearthforum.com slash what hyphen is hyphen F-E-C. Fallen Earth Creationism. Abstract. Science measures what is able to be observed and tested. It holds domain over human understanding of the cosmos and its natural laws. Christianity holds core beliefs that may seem to be in direct conflict with some of these laws. The vast majority of Christians believe in a savior born to a virgin who was the all-powerful son of God, who walked on water and healed the sick, and who died to save humanity and was resurrected after three days in a tomb. These are supernatural events or properties. For many modern Christians, belief in isolated miracles does not pose a major intellectual hurdle. However, some traditional Christian beliefs, such as a world created entirely by God in seven 24-hour days, and not evolution over deep time, as science teaches, have created a stumbling block to faith. Christians have responded with numerous interpretations and ideas as to how they understand the intersection of faith and science. These include an outright rejection of scientific views of creation, or the belief that religion and science reign over entirely different domains, or the idea that religion and science can each inform the other and work collaboratively. Through these approaches, Christians hold a wide array of interpretations of the first three chapters of Genesis. This paper discusses the idea of fully accepting both the Genesis creation account and the modern scientific account of our universe and of creation. Proposed in a simple explanation, not widely discussed in 
proposed as a simple explanation, not widely discussed in theological or academic communities, which would allow for full literal faith in the Genesis creation account, while also completely accepting all of modern science. A very good creation, exactly as described in Genesis 1-3, through and a separate fallen world which we inhabit, as documented by modern science where Adam and Eve were banished after they left the Garden of Eden. The title Fallen Earth Creationism stems from the idea that a fallen, corrupted earth produced and nurtured living things which are themselves fallen and defective. Okay, so I just want to interpolate something here uh, to make this view a little bit more specific. My understanding of Fallen Earth Creationism is that it says that um, initially, before um, our universe came into existence, there was a very good creation, uh, of which we may say uh, many things that young Earth creationists are apt to say about our prelapsarian um, world, or about our world as it was um, uh, supposedly before the fall. Namely, in this very good creation, there was no animal-on-animal -animal violence, there was no death. Maybe uh, the snake in the Garden of Eden even had legs, for all we know. So it was pretty different, and it was a lot nicer in a lot of ways. One point that should be emphasized is that on fallen earth creationism, the very good creation is not the same universe as ours. It's not simply the case that the very good creation is our world before the fall. It's an entirely different universe from ours, uh, which for all we know is still in existence now, in which Adam and Eve and all their descendants, uh, we may say, were, were kept away from uh, through the closing of a portal or, you know, a, a cherub waving a, a burning sword, whatever the case may be. So uh, question number one, if, if the fall actually occurred in a different universe than ours, what's the continuity? What's the, link, the linkage between our world and that world? Um, in uh, his interview with um, Paul Vanderclay, Weston states that the fall is causally prior uh, on this view to the uh, origination of, of fallen humankind and indeed um, to our universe, uh, the whole of our universe, if, if I'm not mistaken. It's causally prior to the Big Bang in some sense, but it's not temporally prior um, to the um, origination of humankind. So in what sense is it not temporally prior um, to the origination of humankind? How I interpret that, at least, is that um, it's not correct um, on the fallen earth creation view uh, to say that the fall occurred in um, our uh, space-time continuum uh, prior to, you know, uh, at, uh, Australopithecus afarensis or Lucy or whoever the first hominid was. It didn't occur in our space-time continuum at all, at all. So at this point, it, it's, it's well worth asking how or in what sense can an event like the fall in another universe or dimension be causally prior to um, events in our universe but not temporally prior to them. Basically, how can an event in some other universe or dimension cause uh, events in our universe uh, or indeed cause our universe to come into existence?
So this morning I wrote down some thoughts as to how that could work. I'm not sure if this is exactly in line with uh, Weston's interpretation of his own theory, but in any case, it is an interpretation. Um, so if it's internally coherent, then it counts as you know a viable uh, uh, version or interpretation of fallen earth creationism in its own right. Okay, here's an excerpt from my notes. Suppose you are standing on some railroad tracks, looking down their length to where the tracks disappear over the horizon. These tracks can be understood as a dimension of reality one dimension higher than the four-dimensional space-time continuum, you know, that we inhabit, or indeed, it's, it's, it's a fifth it's it's a fifth dimensional timeline. It's it's higher than all uh, four dimensional uh, continua or or universes. Suppose also that you have two yardsticks and a magic marker. You lay one of the yardsticks down at your feet, perpendicular to the tracks. So in other words, you're not measuring the length of the tracks with this yardstick. If anything, you're measuring the width. Lay one of those uh, yardsticks um, down at your feet, and then lay the other yardstick down a bit farther ahead along the tracks. So maybe there's just a one foot difference between the first yardstick and the second yardstick, which is also laid down perpendicular to the tracks, parallel to the first yardstick. Now you get out the marker and mark the first yardstick, the, the closer one, from its beginning, or maybe, you know, from the one inch mark, uh, to its middle, or I guess it would be the 18 inch mark. This yardstick represents, this first yardstick represents the very good creation in which Adam was present from the beginning or very near the beginning, as early as six days after its creation. Okay, the, the line that you drew with the marker represents Adam's linear experience of time along that uh, dimension slash yardstick. The halfway mark of the first yardstick represents the point in that universe's um, four-dimensional space-time-like time that the fall occurred. After that event, after the fall, um, but after in a fifth-dimensional sense, not a fourth-dimensional sense. After that event, Adam essentially gets vectored or translated onto the other yardstick. Just a quick note here. I, I suppose I'm not I'm not necessarily claiming a strictly time-like or temporal um, association between the fall and uh, the generation of the uh, the other universe uh, on this uh, fifth dimension. The relation here, at a minimum, is just is just one of causality, you know. But for that event, um, the other. Uh, uh, universe would not have come into being. It may be that as soon as God created the first universe, the very good creation, he knew that the fall was going to happen. Nonetheless, had it not happened, uh, the, the universe which he created thereafter, the, the, the fallen one, would not have come into being. Okay, now get out the marker again and draw from the 18, from the 18 inch mark on the other yardstick to, uh, let's say, the 21-inch mark on the other yardstick, or some arbitrary point uh, before the end of the second yardstick. This latter line uh, represents Adam's sort of linear experience of time in, the, in, in our fallen 
um, universe, which um, which obviously he dies uh, before um, our universe does, but it also begins uh, well after um, our universe began. It's um, Adam's experience of our universe is sort of in medias race. It's in the middle of things. On fallen earth creationism, when Adam comes into our universe, humanity already exists, which, by the way, is an interesting explanation, <laughs> if, if one were sought for, um, as to why in, in Genesis, it's like, you know, Adam and Eve were the first humans, and then their descendants go off and they just find, you know, other, other humans to have children with. It's like, how does that work exactly? Okay, note the takeaway from this illustration. Saying that something is causally but not temporally prior to something else does seem to imply a higher dimensional timeline, granted. However, it does not um, necessarily imply that Adam himself is what you would call a fifth dimensional being, uh, nor even that God is uh, a fifth dimensional being or only a fifth dimensional being. All it implies is that there are higher dimensions of reality to which God has epistemic access and from which, you know, the events of cosmogony can be viewed differently than we view it from within the space-time continuum. Adam's experience is still a crawl through four-dimensional time. It's just sort of, if you will, jump cut across two distinct 4D uh, continua um, or universes, a little bit like a discontinuous or piecewise function. Okay, so hopefully now I've supplied at least one sense in which uh, one of the key claims of fallen earth creationism can be made um, intelligible. Again, assuming what I've said is coherent, then you know maybe this, this helps explain what the theory is saying or could be saying a little bit more. Um, I've, I've been looking over um, the webpage that I cited earlier and I realized that um, Weston's treatment of fallen earth creationism is really brief. So I think I may just read through that. Um, he begins by way of preamble um, uh, with the observation that, you know, of course you have, you have young earth creationists, and you have old earth creationists, and then you have theistic evolution. You know, you've got all these views like the earth is 6,000 years old. The earth is really, really old, but no evolution. The earth is really really old, and there's evolution. And then you've got fallen earth creationism, which, which um, Weston explains in greater depth uh, as follows. Are there any other approaches that could reconcile modern science with a more traditional version of Christianity? Suppose all of modern science's view of cosmic development is true, and that the creation story in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis is also true. How could the two both be true? There is a plausible reconciliation of these seemingly irreconcilable accounts, and it begins with careful consideration of the event of the fall of Adam. Genesis records that after the fall, the world inhabited by the first humans was much different than before the fall. As recorded in Genesis, some of the effects of the fall include the curse on the serpent, which presumably took away his legs, relegating him to crawl in the dust, and placed enmity between the serpent and the woman, the woman was given sorrow, painful childbirth, and submission to her husband. 
Adam, who bears the primary responsibility for the fall, faced a cursed livelihood. The ground was cursed because of Adam's sin, bearing thorns and thistles, and causing him to have to work hard all of his life to obtain his livelihood. Human death, and possibly animal death, was also part of the curse brought on by the fall. Mankind was also thereafter separated from God. The changes given in Genesis brought on by the fall describe some aspects of animals, humans, and the earth we inhabit as we know them today and as they are known to be by modern science. Okay, he's he's just explaining the stuff about sin and death entering the world that I touched on earlier. Let me get into his treatment of, of timelines and so forth. I haven't actually read this, so hopefully what I said is at least an analog to what he has in mind. Uh, the key idea which might reconcile the Genesis creation account with the scientific version is this. The original, presumably supernatural creation described in Genesis as very good, including the Garden of Eden inhabited by Adam and Eve, was a separate creation from our present creation and did not exist on a timeline connected to the timeline of the universe we inhabit. The humans in the Garden of Eden chose disobedience and separation from God. The outcome of their choice was the fall. As a consequence of the fall, and immediately after the fall, our universe formed, prone to decay and natural evil from its beginning in the Big Bang. Between the moment the humans in the garden sinned and fell, and the time of their expulsion from the Garden of Eden, probably later the same day by their reckoning of the passage of time, our present universe was birthed in the Big Bang and evolved forward, as science describes, billions of years. Our universe exists separately and on a separate timeline from the original supernatural world of Genesis, allowing for the apparent differences in the lengths of time which pass in each creation. Some 6,000 to 10,000 years ago, as we would count time in our fallen creation, Adam and Eve were cast from their supernatural creation into our fallen world, which their choice, the fall, had necessitated and caused. This second creation, which we live in, is a fallen version of the original creation. Stated another way, if the events of Genesis 1, 2, 3, uh, 1 through 3 were placed in a separate creation and on a timeline separate from the timeline of our 14 billion year old evolved universe, both the Genesis account and the scientific account of history can be true, occurring in different places and on different timelines. So science describes the fallen universe we inhabit in its entirety, while the Genesis creation account describes a different and supernatural world which existed prior to the fall, with the Garden of Eden as a portal between the two worlds. Our world is seen as having the same structure, places, and living things as the original creation, but in a degraded or fallen form and prone to decay. Presumably, the evolution of life in our world could appear to be random in the sense evolutionary biology describes, but with the constraint that God intervened to see to it that the living things created in the Genesis account reappeared, though in fallen form, in the fallen creation. Sciences tell us, oh, excuse, um, I mean, that's a typo. Science tells us that different types of living things existed in the deep past which no longer exist, and that many modern life forms we are familiar with appeared on Earth more recently, perhaps within the last few tens or, th or hundreds of thousands of years ago. Presumably the flora and fauna which existed when Adam and Eve entered the fallen creation approximately six to ten thousand years ago appeared to be fallen versions of the forms they had seen in the original unfallen creation. Supporting this idea is the biblical indication that God does not perceive the passage of time as we do. Second Peter, uh, 
chapter 3, verse 8 says, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. If one accepts the existence of an all-powerful God, who has always existed and always will, the creation and development of a fallen universe over billions of years, inconceivable to our imagination, would be a quick and easy bit, bit of work for such a God. Certainly, heaven can be thought of as existing on a different timeline than the earth. Also, modern physics has offered the idea that other universes could exist with the passage of their time unconnected to the passage of time in our universe. Einstein's theory of general relativity stipulates that even within our own universe, the passage of time can in theory be perceived to be different for observers with different motions. The Genesis account teaches that change came over the creation after the fall. While this may have historically been interpreted as meaning that the effects of the fall just swept through the original unfallen creation, I'm proposing that the fall caused the formation of a different fallen version of the original very good creation. It came into existence on a separate timeline, and it has been accurately described and cataloged by modern science. Okay, I want to skip ahead to where Weston anticipates some of his criticisms and start from here. Legitimate criticism of FEC can be raised. For example, Genesis names rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, which flowed out of the Garden of Eden and existed in the unfallen creation. Rivers with these same names exist in our world today. This would lend credence to the idea that we are in the same creation, which was changed from unfallen to fallen form. However, FEC, fallen earth creationism, would stipulate that our world is a close, though fallen and degraded copy of the original, having the same general geography, hence the same names. Another very obvious criticism is the fact that the idea of separate creations is not given in the Bible. Well, I just had an idea right now. Um, you know, Eden is biblically, it's like the easternmost location. Um, uh, on fallen earth creationism, we might say that uh, Adam wa I mean, Eden was in Adam's mind the sort of easternmost location, presumably because after being banished from it, he headed west and sort of never uh, went back east, perhaps. <laughs> that's, that's maybe one possible explanation. Another very obvious criticism is the fact that the idea of separate creations is not given in the Bible. However, the Bible omits detail regarding exactly how the fall was placed on creation. Genesis 3 verse 18 mentions that Adam would face thorns and thistles, which presumably came into existence after the fall. The Bible leaves it a mystery as to how thorns and thistles came to be, along with many other harmful features of the fallen world, which are complex features of creation. It's a very interesting point. I mean, it also occurs to me that there actually are two separate accounts of creation in the Bible. Um, but I, I don't know to what extent that observation fits well with FEC. I mean, the, the differences between those two uh, creation accounts in Genesis might, or the apparent differences between those two uh, creation accounts in, in Genesis uh, might just be problematic for you whether you're young earth old earth or fallen earth prior to modern science theologians must have wondered how the wasp got its stinger or the lion its appetite and digestive machinery for eating lambs young earth creationism would seem to imply that after the creation was finished as noted in genesis uh, 2 uh, verses 2 to 3 and after the fall 
God must have done a great deal of additional work to create the features of natural evil in living things, like wasp stingers or thorns. Life on Earth is filled with structures, systems, and cellular machinery needed to support natural evil. FEC allows for the scientific explanation of our universe and for living things, which are brought into existence by the natural appearing processes of the fallen creation and fallen earth. Another criticism might be that traditional Christian belief through the ages has never considered the fallen creation we inhabit to be separate from the original creation described in Genesis chapter 1. If the subject of controversy was an important theological idea or doctrine, then time-honored traditional Christian beliefs would be extremely important, probably definitive. However, I would argue that FEC resolves the scientific conflict with Genesis, does not conflict with any mainstream Christian doctrines, and in fact helps maintain the paramount Christian belief in the literal and actual fall of man who was redeemed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. An additional criticism of FEC might be found in Genesis chapter uh, 3, verse 30, uh, King James Version. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. This verse is difficult to reconcile unless one is a young earth creationist, in which case it is not problematic. If scientific investigations eventually confirm the beliefs of young earth creationism, then the science genesis controversy is resolved, and ideas like FEC are unnecessary. At present, this seems very unlikely. The idea of Eve being the single biological female ancestor of all humans within the last six to 10,000 years seems untenable within the framework of either FEC, theistic evolution, or old earth creationism. Per FEC, Eve would be the mother of all living if considered only the descendants uh, if considering only the descendants of Adam discussed in Genesis, including those killed by the flood. Uh, she could, however, also be considered a mother to all humans in that her form and genetics would serve as a template for all humans. Okay, so that last point raises an interesting question regarding the ancestry of humanity, humanity as we know it. Let me read a couple paragraphs from Weston to, to clarify his views on this point. Another, another imp implication of the idea presented here is that Adam and Eve would have been unique in all the world as the only non-evolved humans. Perhaps evolved humans were already there, explaining, for example, how Cain found a wife. Plausibly, the longevity of Adam and his immediate descendants was related to superior genetics, which degraded over time from environmental stress and from interbreeding with regular humans. The biblical mention of the Nephilim might be explained as offspring between the sons of God, Adam's descendants, and the daughters of man, evolved humans. Combining the rapid, relatively short growth period of evolved humans with a plausibly longer growth period of long-lived Adamic descendants might account for the giants described in the Bible. The Bible also refers to a time when men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Perhaps this is the time when evolved humans began to be accountable to God. The idea of separate creations might bear on the account of the flood as well. The people described as extremely wicked in the flood narrative were presumably people in the Near East who were descended from Adam and Eve. They were long-lived, which potentially increased their opportunities for carrying out evil. If superior genetics accounted for longevity, it may have also granted them high intelligence. Also, they had an historic connection to the Creator through Adam and Eve, 
God possibly at times spoke interact, spoke slash interacted directly with them, as suggested by the account of Cain and Abel, and also suggested by the story of Enoch. Therefore, they may have directly rejected God, compounding their evil. The Bible records that these wicked descendants of Adam were destroyed by the flood, except for Noah and his family. If the flood was localized to the Near East, it would have spared most evolved humans, those not descended from Adam. This would have included most of the humans on the earth, including those in Africa, most of Europe, and Asia, the Americas, Australia, Polynesia, etc. The rest of the world would have been occupied by humans who, although fallen, were not evil to such a degree as to warrant extermination. The Ark would have needed to preserve species only from the Near East, or perhaps most especially the domesticated animals developed by these long-lived people. Okay, hopefully that gave you some idea as to what fallen earth creationism is. Um, in reading Weston's treatment of the sense in which the fall can be causally prior, but not temporally prior to um, the, say, or origination of humankind in our world or timeline, I question whether it was necessary for me to give my own explanation of how something like that could make sense. I think in the end, it sort of was, just because when Weston and I were discussing it in a in a chat room a couple weeks ago, there was at least one person in, in the chat room who was confused um, as to how the very good creation could have existed before, uh, you know, uh, our universe did. You know, there seems to be something like a temporal pre-existence. Um, but, um, you know, in, in the mind of, of this uh, chat room participant, time refers only, you know, to the, the fourth dimension of our space-time continuum. So it seems sort of impossible um, for something like a very good creation to pre-exist um, the space-time continuum excel itself. You know, on this on this limited view of time, nothing can pre-exist the Big Bang. But, you know... Where I can understand this person's point is, if time doesn't mean uh, the fourth dimension of our space-time continuum, what does it mean? See, to my way of thinking, at least, if you speak of timelines, um, I mean, you know, if there are two timelines that are both real, they have to be mutually relevant in some way, especially if one speaks of them as, you know, causally related to each other, or events in one timeline are causally related either to events in the other timeline or to the generation of that other timeline itself. So to me, if you speak this way, it presupposes a meta timeline. And the existence of such a meta timeline can, I think, clear up some of the confusion which arises in statements like the following, quote, between the moment the humans in the garden sinned and fell and the time of their expulsion from the Garden of Eden, probably later the same day by their reckoning of the passage of time. Our present universe was birthed in the Big Bang and evolved forward, as science describes, billions of years. So, you know, the question is, how much time did it take to create our universe? Did it just take a few hours? That's a strange way of speaking, because at least from within our space-time continuum, the answer ought to be that it took billions of years. And outside um, the space-time continuum, the answer probably isn't a few hours. So, 
you know, I, I think what Weston was getting at is that this is just a sort of uh, subjective perception um, of, of how long it took, but there's not actually any objective basis for that perception. If there was some creative consciousness, the action of whose mind um, might be described as that meta timeline, along which lesser timelines like the, ves the very good creation and our uh, space-time creation come into being, then, you know, that, that creative consciousness might experience the, the creation of the, the second timeline as a matter of a few hours. But even then, if, if the creative consciousness or intelligence that we're talking about is God himself, it probably wasn't experienced as any time at all. The meta timeline on which the very good creation and our creation came into existence came into existence all at once because God foreknew uh, the fall and what would happen in our uh, fallen creation before or at the moment that he created events along that meta timeline, or at least, you know, one could argue. It's, it gets very um, tr tricky to think about it at this level of complexity. Um, but my, my, my basic point was that to speak of causal relations between, between um, otherwise discrete timelines does imply a sort of underlying meta timeline. And if you have a meta timeline, what that involves is a spatialization of the sort of lesser timelines uh, to which the, the meta timeline is orthogonal, which means that from this higher dimensional vantage point, one can't give an answer to questions like how many years elapsed from Adam's point of view between the fall and Adam's entry into the fallen creation that that you and I were born in. It's not as if all the years remaining in the very good uh, creation, uh, and it's it's not as if all the years remaining in the life of the very good creation had to elapse prior to um, Adam's um, entry into our um, fallen uh, space-time world, which I mean, maybe the very good creation is truly possessed of indefinite um, extension or and is always being sort of added to and and regenerated in some way but the point is um that that both from adam's point of view and and perhaps also using even from god's point of view the answer may well be that it took no time at all the whole question of god's relationship to time is of course very tricky to me even to speak of god creating within time or God creating time itself is always to place God in a kind of time and therefore to make him uh, finite in a way which I mean if he's conscious then he if he is a consciousness then he is finite because consciousness is is composed of defined values and consciousness takes itself as an argument Consciousness is self-defining and reflexive. So any consciousness is going to be finite to that extent. But anyway, we are definitely getting off topic. Um, and um, so I want to go back to, I want to play the video now. Um, uh, Weston's interview with Paul Vanderclay. And I'll just uh, comment um, whenever I feel the need to jump in.
Orlando slot. Oops, I just I just lost your paper. Uh, Weston, is, is it Scopper or Scaper? How do you it's actually Shaper. Shaper. Okay, Shaper. So yeah. Weston. Well, let, let's begin with a little bio because if you've never been on my channel before. He sent me a very interesting paper, and we just had a very interesting conversation before recording. This is always the way it goes. Sometimes I, you know, the U.S. California law requires that I gain your permission to record the conversation, which is a very fair thing. But uh, right. I can already tell this is going to be fun. So you start. Who okay. are you? Okay. Um, my name is Weston Shaper. Uh, I'm 31 years old. I live in uh, Missouri, and uh, I'm an aerosol scientist. That's interesting. You're just full of interesting. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Um, boy, what an interesting thing to be during a pandemic, huh? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it's, I joke with, uh, well, I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's been, it's been, uh, it's been busy. You can imagine. Um, we, we, what we do, I mean, just to give you a brief, uh, our laboratory, uh, will test products for clients. Or, and, but we do many, many other things, consulting or engineering or modeling. And, uh, there's lots of stuff. But, you know, as COVID hit, there was um, a wave of, of products that, you know, people were coming up with and wanting to see, if, hey, does this purify the air? What if, you know, uh, what if I add a filter? What if I add UV? You know, everybody just wanted to see if they could, you know. So I don't know if they were making, you know, a lot of people thought they could make money off the pandemic or what. But, you know. Uh, there's been it, a lot of money to be made off this pandemic. Probably more true. than any that's pandemic true. before by far. Right, that's true. So, um, so yeah, it's been busy, which is great. Uh, but, uh, so yeah, that's not what we're here to talk about. But again, every time right, you open your right. mouth, this more interesting comes out. This is a problem for a guy <laughs> like me. So let's 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 limit the frame here and say, okay, well, how how on earth did you find my channel, and and why do you why do you want to have this conversation? Yeah, so um, I found your channel in 2018, sometime, oh, sometime wow, really? in 2018. Yeah, and I stayed quiet. I think I even uh, joined the Discord. Well, I think I joined the Discord after a year, and I just it sat on my phone, and I just wasn't sure. I it, I hadn't even used Discord, but um, it's a lot. I found your. It is a lot. It is a lot, and um, but I mean, I've been a little more active uh, as of late. Um, but uh, so I found your channel. I think through searching terms. Honestly, I think I was searching. I can't remember what I was searching, but I remember seeing you know clicking uh, your video, and it was some theological word, you know, and. You know, but I, it, I mean, you, it was relevant, you know, I was watching Jordan Peterson and I was watching other people and I have this slew, you know, I have a, I have a list just like probably many of your other viewers and, and you do as well, a list of guys you rotate, you'll listen to their videos or, or, you know, listen to their podcasts. And, uh, you were in my rotation <laughs> after that. Cause I liked the video that I had watched. And, um, uh, what I like most about you honestly, uh, is just how, well, how many topics you were willing to dive deep into. And also, your you you are extremely thoughtful in your responses, and you really weigh things in the balances. And I found that, you know, I, I just thought that was awesome, because you know, uh, and like what I sent you, you know, the, on the, uh, the topic of that the paper I sent you, you know, that stuff can get people are passionate, you know, about oh yeah, you know, Christianity and religion, yeah yeah. And so uh, it's but to me, you know, a lot of that stuff is just fun to talk about no matter what and. Yeah. Well, okay, so let's dial things back a little bit more. Um, how did you grow up in a Christian home? What was that like? Do you still identify as a Christian? Do you go to church? I mean, some of these kind of pastoral things that I'm always curious about. Sure. Okay, I've got a probably a pretty interesting tidbit here. Uh, so um, my mom grew up Methodist in a, a southern Kansas, um, and 
my dad grew up, fire baptized holiness. And it was a, you know, a very secluded group of, of, let's say holiness. It was a holiness group and it wasn't, it, it didn't have the Pentecostal elements. It was more, you know, if, if you're wearing jewelry, you're, you're probably going to hell. If you're wearing, if you're wearing short sleeves, you're going to hell. If you're not wearing pants, you know, stuff like that. And they would have revivals, um, you know, that whole movement. And it was started by a guy named, I think his name was Benjamin Irwin. And he was sort of a, I think he ended up, you know, he was just one of these fantastic characters that had a revival spirit about him. And it, 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 it caused a tidal wave of, of Christian fervor, uh, you know, fervor for the Lord. And, you know, there were good and there were really good and, and not so good things that came out of it. And, you know, they, the, the group today has distanced themselves from that, that person, but they're a Bible school and they're still going. My dad uh, left disillusioned from the church because he, it was just, it was too much for him. And so my, they, you know, they probably viewed my mom as the worldly woman that, that, you know, uh, tore my, my dad away. But um, anyways, so oh, those so, Baptists. <laughs> yeah, right. Worldly so, Baptists. So, um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we, uh, my, my parents uh, raised my, my three sisters and I, uh, we went to a Methodist church, left there and start, uh, I probably was spent most of my childhood at a college church of the Nazarene, it's, or Mid-American Nazarene. It's, it's a college here in uh, the KC Metro. And uh, then when I was in my late teens in college, we went to uh, Church of the Resurrection. It's a United Methodist Church. And then um, fast forward to today, I got married. Um, I have two kids, and we go to a small Baptist church in Missouri. All right. All right. That's good. Is that good? Yeah. Okay. Where, where did you go to college? Oh, Texas Christian University. In, wow. In so you are you are you are middle America. I mean, really, really middle. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I spent a year in, in New Orleans. So uh, that'd be the only that'd be the farthest I went out. But There's you're right. I'm, I'm right. Exactly. Uh, but you're right. Just I-35. That's the highway connecting KC, Oklahoma City, Dallas. Yeah, that was my that was my trip back and forth home in school. Why? Why did you get interested in Jordan Peterson? Um, well, I found what his, the first video I saw of him was a video that just said Canadian professor is, you know, engaging outside of, uh, you know, on a campus. And it was a wild, crazy video that was a little hectic and chaotic to watch. And that was honestly my first take. And I just was like, man, this, this poor chap's trying to be reasonable. And, and, uh, you know, I didn't think much of it. And then, you know, later on, his, he, maybe a news article came out about him and then I just actively searched him on my own. And then, you know, of course, uh, everyone knows what happened after that. He, he rose to, to, to prominence and uh, had a huge impact on a lot of people and uh, myself included. And I felt like he was, he was addressing, he, he was addressing a, a void in sort of the, I don't know, the, he was telling, he was saying things that people were fascinated by and clearly needed and want to hear. And so I felt like he's some, I don't know where he is on my map, but he is hitting on something that I feel like the church should listen to, you know, and all right. All so, right. Yeah. And I still listen to him. So, well, we have, we have limited time. And so I won't, okay. I won't take too much of your time. So what was it you wanted to talk today about? Well, I'd say the most, uh, the uh, theological issue I'm most passionate about is the creation account in Genesis. And it just fascinates me how all the different uh, ways of reconciling the Genesis account with modern science. And, um, I, the, the paper I sent you, uh, you know, touched on it. I, I, I tried to survey all the main views that, that you hear in 
uh, about Genesis. You know, there's the fundamentalist view that God made the, the world in, in, in seven days. Uh, and, you know, and then you, uh, young earth creationism, there's old earth creationism and uh, theistic evolution, um, intelligent design. Some of these, uh, you know, are are related. There's branches off branch. You know, there's there's uh, branches off those uh, big topics. And then, uh, you know, uh, the two creation thought where, you know, Genesis one is one creation. And there was a male and female, you know, male and female in general were made and uh, then Adam and Eve were made. There's that thought. And so I was just most interested uh, in all these ideas. I, I like guys like Hugh Ross. He's an older creationism, an extremely intelligent guy. Uh, even guys like Kent Hovind, who are a little rough. He's a younger creationist uh, who, you know, likes to get in um, uh, spats with atheists and talk about uh, evolution and younger. And it's just it's a it's a very engaging topic. And um you know, it's not the, the other thing I like about it is it's not it's not it's not part of the central tenet of of Christianity that it's somehow necessary for salvation for you to to know what's going on. And so for me, that kind of frees it up where we can discuss it. And you know, uh, as much as I've read and thought about it, and I'm I'm still open. You know, I, I still uh, chew on all kinds of aspects and, and how science and, and how science relates to the account in Genesis. You know, it, is the um, who who's the literary Adam and who's the historical Adam? Uh, uh, William Lane Craig just recently uh, did a, he wrote a book on the historical Adam and he goes into this big mytho historical genre of, of, of Genesis and, 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 and tries to wait, find where, you know, who Adam was. Is he, is he mostly a literary figure or is he, or is he historical? And of course, you know, there's good arguments for both and that's, that's, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the, after I had, you know, exhausted my, all probably as, as I had, you know, seemingly thought of every sort of way to view the Genesis account, I thought of a way to reconcile it that I thought was relatively uh, new. I, I couldn't find it. I couldn't find um, this 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 idea that I laid out. And I, I honestly searched for a long time and I thought, well, why wouldn't this work? Why can't um, this new idea work? And I what I called this idea was fallen earth creationism, just as a, um, you know, just next to young earth creationism and old earth creationism because it didn't really fit those boxes and i really emphasized the fall um and uh hold on one second i was just i just had my paper up and i want to make sure i don't i stay organized here for for my uh when speaking to you but arguably fallen earth creationism isn't a very good title or it's a title which really downplays the the, the radical nature of its thesis because um when you think about it, uh, pretty much what uh, every uh, account of creation, whether it be theistic evolution, whether it be young earth creation, is going to take for granted that uh, the creation is fallen in some sense, um, unless you you know had some you know radically different and possibly unorthodox view um, of creation, which says that, no, it's actually good. We're, we're in a good creation right now, which I mean, there's always a certain kind of truth to that because um, you ultimately need duality in order for life to have meaning. But um, yeah, it, fallen earth creation, it kind of downplays uh, uh, the, the, the radicality of that thesis. And um, I would substitute almost like parallel universe or, um, you know, multiple timelines creationism, which doesn't sound as euphonious, 
um, but um, it, it, is, it does give a better indication as to um, what the theory is putting forward. Are you, sh so, you shared a paper with me. Is that out on the internet that I can put a link to it in the notes? I mean, is it on Google Drive or something like that? Not yet. Okay. But that is, that is my next task. Okay. To to place this on, um, and I in fact, I took you know I I uh, I took your time slots before um, you know I before this obviously, and my dad has played an integral role. He's sort of my back and forth. My my, my dad and I are, are just theological buddies, yeah. and we just go back and forth, back and forth, and we speak hours on end. Our wives are like, oh come on, not this again. You know <laughs> when we get together, and um, you know. Uh, God bless them because, you know, we do, we'll, we'll get into it. And, you know, sometimes my wife will be, be like, now look, there's going to be a lot of people at this event. Don't spend all your time maybe talking to your dad about uh, Genesis or something like that. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, you're right. You're right. I need to tone it down. And so, so we, we, you know, uh, I, I, I just bring that up because uh, he helped me craft um, a lot of, a lot of uh, the thinking and, um, but, Coming back to what you said, yes, I plan to get something that you can link to as quick as possible, um, and you know, hopefully before this, if you post this video, you know, okay. uh, before that, before okay. then, or, okay. or soon after. Yeah. Well, so. I'll hold. I'll hold off if it's if it's because I already know this is an interesting conversation, and I think some people listening to it will be very interested. I mean, I I have to admit, I got your email last night. I was home, so I just kind of skimmed it in the few minutes that I had, and. I thought, oh, this is this is really very interesting, and it sort of intersects, in some ways, with my some of the secret sacred self thinking that I've been doing. Because, I you're right. I had not I had not seen this approach to that dilemma, and the you know when you the way you state the problem is something that I have seen. Okay, I had to I had to pause because an ad was inbound, but um. And Paul Vanderclay's remark about the secret, uh, sacred self does sort of make me wonder what he meant by that. Is he implying a sort of connection between fallen earth creationism and Gnosticism? If so, you know, that's interesting. I, I can kind of see it because um, fallen earth creationism is explaining the, the, the creation with reference to some kind of higher uh, meta reality. Um, it's it's it it is making our reality uh, no longer uh, the base reality, which in a way sort of makes it sound like um, the so-called uh, simulation hypothesis um, makes it sound like we are in the simulation rather than in uh, whatever would be simulating uh, you know a simulation. And um, yeah, of course, this this puts me in mind of you know my my favorite theologian Chris Langan, um, who talks about um, reality as indeed a simulation, as representational all the way through, and ultimate reality as a self simulation. And um, one of the first messages I sent to Weston was that um, it seems to me quite quite possible, quite plausible that that there are, as it were, syntactic restrictions in the simulation that we inhabit that prevent us from accessing, you know, all the, what, servers, if you like, in which, in which reality can unfold, all the, all the lesser simulations in which conscious minds can interact, conscious minds which are themselves information processing programs um, that 
that that are part of the simulation that make up its its syntax. Okay, but see that's also far afield. So let's go back to the video. A certain degree of willful avoidance with theologically that lurks behind these issues. Um, it get it's get raised sometimes. It gets raised sometimes by celebrity atheists with animal death before the fall. Um, but you know, fundamentally, as as theistic evolutionists and many will point out, uh, to a degree, our our physiology is dependent upon decay. I mean, the largest organ in the human body is the skin, and skin relies on cellular death to function. So right. these categories, um, these scientific categories of death. Um, are you know they they play some they play some funky things with a modernist image. So your fallen earth creationism. I, again, I skimmed it. I thought, whoa, this is interesting. This is a this is a very new approach. Well, I'm 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 excited to hear that because you know one of the litmus tests you know was to ask people, ask people that were you know uh, that that had that ask people like yourself that 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 have chewed on this issue a lot before. And, you know, the, the big, you know, heavy hitters on this topic, like Mike Behe and guys who wrote books about, uh, you know, you mentioned Francis Collins on your channel recently. He's a big deal with theistic evolution guy. Um, he, you know, the, these guys are sort of like figureheads in my mind for all of these different ways to reconcile the Genesis, Genesis account. And what I found, you know, I found pros and cons for each of them. And like you said, there's, there's things that, that just are unavoidable. If you if you subscribe to theistic evolution like Francis Collins or he likes to call it biologos, there you, you can't escape from the millions of years of death and decay that supposedly existed for, before humans came along. Or you know maybe some of the the, the dark uh, human history for the tens of thousands of years leading up to now that that existed. And so so you know you got to tread lightly in my mind before you go and say that that was God's creative process that was very good as described in Genesis. Yeah, and and, and atheists. Well, there's just one point I want to make here, and it's a point that's consistent with another reaction uh, uh, video that I saw on YouTube, probably the only uh, sort of reaction video that you'll find to Fallen Earth Creationism online because it's kind of a new idea. But um, uh, the, the point I want to make is, a point C.S. Lewis was making was when he invited us to imagine a world in which... Um, uh, you know, any attempt to harm another person, to to cause or inflict evil, um, is met with you know the sudden thwarting of that attempt. Like you try to stab someone and your knife turns into jelly, for example. Um, and every time you scrape your knee, you fall. Rather, every time you fall, um, you are uh, prevented from scraping your knees by the timely intervention of angels. And so forth. And the question is, what what possibility of meaning is there in such a world? Yes, you can say that death is bad, but without death and without pain and suffering, what meaning does existence have? Um, I, I I I want people to actually ponder this very seriously. And you might ask me, well, you know, it's like if you think that duality is so necessary uh, for existence to have meaning. Um, then why do you find Weston's theory attractive at all? And I guess I'll answer that briefly here, and I'll just say that the reason I find it interesting and compelling is that I've often reflected um, on on um, questions of you know whether 
events in the Bible are literally true, whether the creation account is literally true. People who listen to this podcast will hear me talk about evolution as though it's a, it's, it's a given, and you might think that, therefore, I just assume that these accounts of creation and Genesis uh, are, are strictly metaphorical. And yeah, that's what I lean toward, but I don't, I don't claim to know. And I've always suspected that just given how little we know, the answer to how old the earth is, and the answer to questions like whether the flood really happened, they, they might be something other than just bald statements that, you know, the, these, these were metaphorical. They never actually happened. What if they occurred in some way, uh, that we presently cannot cannot conceive of. What if they what if they literally happened? But what if their literal occurrence does not necessarily mean that they occurred? You know, uh, within the the space time continuum that we can access, or if you like that that portion of the simulation to which we have uh, syntactic access. So yeah, that basically the answer is that one of the reasons why I really am intrigued by Weston's theory is that it illustrates how sort of sideways the, the, the real answer to questions of this kind might be. And, and it illustrates how ultimately the question of whether these occurred literally or whether they only occurred figuratively might be, might be an inadequate framework um, for making ultimate sense of them. But that being said, if I were a betting, if, if I were a betting man and I had to, you know, lay down uh, bets as to which view I think is most likely, I would still say that that probably the meaning of, of, of uh, the events in Genesis is symbolic. That being said, it's, it's very intriguing how much explanatory mileage Weston gets out of fallen earth creationism as this video unfolds. And that was what I really found. That was another aspect of um, FEC that I found very... Um, very interesting. Oh, and also there's one more reason why I find FEC um, interesting and noteworthy, but I'm going to save that for the end of this episode. It's, it's going to be a surprise. You have to stay tuned to the end uh, for that last reason. Okay, back to the video. This make a lot of hay from this, these differences, and even, you know, very, um, you know, John Vervecki, I would classify very much as a person of peace. Um, you know, John Verveke and part of his non-theism, for a lot of people, the, the image of a good God seems inconsistent with the level of suffering that one has to presuppose in almost all of the evolutionary narratives that we currently possess. So, right. I mean, these are, these are not small issues. No. No. Um, one thing I wrote, I, did, I don't think it's in the paper, but I, I know I wrote it in my book, was that, you know, there are big issues in Christianity that, that, um, you know, different generations are tasked with tackling. And in my mind, this issue, the reconciliation of, of Genesis with modern science has been a big topic for the last 150 years, basically since Darwin's origin of the species. Yep. But before that, it, 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 it wasn't, I mean, they, they, it wasn't an issue that, 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 you know, sent shockwaves through the laity, uh, you know, making people question whether they actually believed it or not. I mean, you know, one of the reasons this issue this issue appealed to me was, you know, every time I heard a non, you know, a, a, an atheist or someone who just didn't believe in Christianity, it was one, it was a go-to topic on, um, that they would go to just to tell people why they didn't believe in Christianity. Well, I don't believe in it because I opened the book and the first chapter is fiction. 
Yep. The first couple chapters are fiction. They clearly aren't true because I, I, you know, that, and, and, and so, you know, that causes Christians to, you know, we've had it easy in, in, in many ways, Christians, uh, at least on this topic where we haven't needed to defend it necessarily. And so many of us are caught off guard and I wouldn't say that that uh, statement is true, let's say in the past, I don't know, 10 years, like 15 years, but, but it, it was true for a while in, in, in the 20th century and the 19th and 20th century. And so, um, you know, it's. I feel like if, if it's going to be something that is brought up by people who don't believe, uh, then you know, Christians need to address it. Like you said, uh, Christians are are not. You know, they're not eager to to touch on the topic necessarily, and they, it might make them defensive. I mean, it made me defensive. When, you know, as a younger person, and I just thought, well, I, we have to we have to think about this. This is the foundation of the faith. In in, in one of your recent videos, you mentioned that you know the the, the story in Genesis are you know, in many ways, the bedrock that, that help you make sense of the rest of the story, you know, and I'm reminded of when Paul mirrors Adam and, and Christ, um, over and over again, and, um, into, in first Corinthians, and I think, and he clearly makes this, 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 this comparison. And if you're going to compare Christ who we believe is real, well, is Adam real? That's a very cool question. How, how necessary is it? theologically and biblically that Adam be a, a real person, uh, a, a sort of, you know, one, uh, one distinct individual. I, I, that, that might be an underappreciated question. And if Adam's real, well, then what else is, you know, how, how do we reconcile that? So, um, but why yeah, don't you, I mean, why I don't could... you give us the skinny here? I mean, we only have a half hour okay. left, yep. so that's right. It's going to be, I yeah. mean, I, I can anticipate tons of, pushback and skepticism and yeah buts and pushing it away sure. but oh, um so let's get let's get the skinny what, what on earth what, what do you mean by fallen okay. earth creationism okay so so the first thing i'd say uh i guess is that you know adam and eve are treated as historical by the by figures in the new testament christ you know alludes to the creation account by saying you know in the beginning uh god made them male and female uh, the genealogies are present and, you know, Abraham's who's a Genesis character is in both genealogies, you know, uh, you at least have to, you know, think about if he's, uh, you know, if Abraham's real or other, you know, Genesis characters, real. um, all the characters in, in, in Hebrews, uh, uh, faith, fit by faith hall of fame, you know, the, all those characters, um, the, the, the flood is also, you know, in this, uh, broad question of, of, of his historicity. So I, I think it's it's I argue that it is important to have a historical Adam because because of these theological repercussions of not having one. It's not necessarily that scientifically I have a great argument for Adam being historical. It's that I think he's necessary for the for the framework of Christianity. And um, it you know, or if he isn't, it, it's a hard sell or it has been a hard sell. Uh, and so the way I reconcile us, uh, that issue is by saying, OK, well, let's take let's take. Genesis, as people have taken Genesis for the last 2,000 years, you know, minus the, the most recent 150, it's true. It's, it could be seven days, maybe, maybe, maybe not, but let's just say God created the earth in seven days. He created Adam and Eve in the garden. He created a tree of life. He created a tree of knowledge of good and evil. He created the serpent. He created the scenario where they, you know, in which they sin, they disobey God. Well, I emphasize, of, I emphasize the fall as the crucial event in creation. And um, most of the creation 
uh, views emphasize, let's say, the first chapter uh, or first two chapters, trying to explain, well, you know, day one was this long or day two. You know, it's in sequence. They have all these great arguments that seem to work. But in my mind, the fall is key. And if you think about what the fall is, the fall is this choice that Adam and Eve were given. And it somehow, um, you know, I, don't, I won't try to flesh out that, that choice here right now, but uh, totally because there's a lot to cover. But um, they, God wanted, our created, an aspect of, of, of humans was free will. And this, this decision uh, allows, it was almost like had to be necessary as um, t- to make sense of human nature, uh, uh, our, our free will. And so God gave us this choice knowing that we would uh, fall, and we did. We, we, we desired um, uh, the, you know, it was, a, it, it was desirable to us to, to, to eat of this fruit. And what the fruit seemed to give us was odd. It, it made Adam and Eve ashamed of their nakedness. It, um, and then God describes, you know, when he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, he, he sort of lists things that are going to happen to each of the players in that story. You know, Eve's going to have uh, trouble in childbirth. It's going to be painful, and she's going to be submissive to her husband. He's going to have dominion over you. The man is going to work at the soil to get what he needs. No longer uh, a free ride. And brambles and bushes, you know, thorns and thistles. These, what I think is being described by God here is these are the consequences of your actions. And because you have uh, done this, a new fallen version of creation is has to be made. A fallen creation that allows for you to write God out of the equation a little bit so that you can look up into the stars and not just know that God created it. It's part of the it's part of the decision that they made. And so there's 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 a couple of perspectives to look at this. If you're viewing the fall and, and, and again, this is under the the umbrella of fallen earth creationism. So um, what I'm just yeah, um, if you're viewing the fall from God's perspective, God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. And after they left, God being, you know, outside of time and space of the, of the, of the creation we live in, uh, created the cosmos. He created from the Big Bang all the way up until, let's say, 6,000 years ago um, when Adam and Eve, let's say, came onto the scene. That's God's perspective. And um, from Adam and Eve's perspective, there was no Big Bang. Yeah, notice God's perspective. So this is getting into what David Bentley Hart might deride as theistic personalism, a God who at least implicitly seems to be finite. Uh, if not over something like time, um, then, you know, nonetheless finite in the sense of not being some kind of unimaginable actualized infinity and a being or a consciousness which is necessarily in something like time, even if that uh, time like something is just the action of his own consciousness. The highest syntactic dimension along which the states of his consciousness um, are transformed. And um, I mean, David Manley Hart is right to point out that a lot of these sort of more literally or fundamentalist uh, minded uh, uh, theologians uh, are theistic personalists. They they do seem to conceive God as an entity among other entities rather than uh, some kind of uh, ground of being. Of course, the problem with supposing that God is, is the ground of being and, and, and not also um, something like a mind like ours is that uh, the ground of being is rather, it's rather unlimited. Um, 
when you investigate its nature uh, closely. And it's not really legitimate, if you ask me, to say that the ground of being is also an intentional mind that is in a, a loving relationship with you. It is beyond, um, a, you know, predicative limitations like like it's it's a mind as opposed to not a mind or it's it's a father as opposed to not a father and i know where where you know people like hart are going to come back um is is they're going to say well i'm not saying he's a father i'm saying he's father like well it's like either he's father like or he's not father like he's that ground of being uh in which both father-like things and not father-like things subsist. So he's beyond descriptions and labels like that. So how can you say he's an intentional mind that loves you? You know, this is, this is seriously impersonal. That's where the critique of theistic personalism um, is, is blind to the, to, the, to the shortcomings of classical theism. So don't dismiss Weston out of hand just because he seems to have this more finite and, and personal notion of God um, you know, I'm of the opinion that they're both correct in some sense, that God is validly known under both descriptions and one more, namely the relationship between the aforementioned uh, other two descriptions, and, and, you know, and that these differences can be resolved within the Trinity. But anyway, whatever you might think of that, uh, I just wanted to, to, to make that point. Uh, all right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that that he's talking to Paul Vanderclay right now, because Vanderclay seems to be aware of this issue too. When he talks about God as God number one, the arena, and God number two, the agent, it's exactly this. And then the question is, in what theological model can God be validly interpreted as both arena and agent? I think Langan's uh, cognitive theoretic model of the universe is the best theological model for doing that. But that's also off topic. So let's go back. God created the earth in seven days and they didn't see when they, when they walked out of the garden, they transitioned into this fallen creation 6,000 years ago. And, uh, I imagine, you know, the banks, the riverbanks of the Euphrates are kind of like the wardrobe in CS Lewis, the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, you know, they're walking along and the, you know, nice elements of the garden transition to, uh, you know, thorns and thistles that hurt their feet. And it's pretty soon, you know, they're longing to be back in the garden, so they look back, and there is no garden. You know, uh, uh, the children in, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia feel back, and they don't feel the, the, the cold pine uh, of, the, um, of Narnia anymore. It's just a wardrobe with, with coats. And so it... Beautiful, beautiful description. Pure imagination. That's what, I, I love this idea. I love, I love Weston's... Um, I love his, uh, his mind. I love that he would make that connection. They, they had been locked out. I mean, maybe uh, for lack of a better word, uh, some, they left through some portal. And uh, I think, you know, the best analogy would be uh, the wardrobe in some ways. And um, so there's there's a lot of aspects here, but uh, here's, that's the gist. That's the, that's the meat, let's say, of, of the idea. The idea that the very good creation is distinct from the fallen creation, and it's distinct at least in, ver in, 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 in their descriptions by God and, and in, in Genesis. Um, and so, you know, this ties back to what we've been talking about, these other ways to reconcile the creation account. 
you, do you reconcile very good? Would you would God call what maybe we describe in our uh, using you know mock science as very good? Uh, there's a lot of unnecessary suffering, and in my mind, the fall is the cause of that suffering. And by making by 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 making the two creations distinct, it the the fall is causally prior to the our universe, but not necessarily temporally prior to our universe. If that makes sense. Yes, yes, yes. I, I get, I get, I okay. get what you're painting here, and it is fascinating. And part of the reason I really wanted to do this is, you know, I've been talking to Grim Grizz about, I mean, and developing on my channel. I mean, what is, my channel is sort of the third, the third lobe, the third hemisphere of my brain. It's sort of become that, and the Consciousness Congress out there in YouTube land is is far smarter and uh, well read and better educated than myself. And so, when you describe this, it 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 sort of relates to a lot of my apologies <laughs> i wasn't fast enough to stop that ad okay let's go back world various flavors of gnosticism um, of dualisms and so i really wanted to get your idea out there because the comments are going to be the comments are going to be excellent because there's a number of people who listen to my channel who are going to hear this and they're going to now there's going to be a lot of yeah but i don't think so and there's going to be a lot of attacking it sort of from a scientific perspective, I get that, because it's sort of a, it's in some ways analogous to a lot of alien, you know, human beings were placed here by the aliens. Um, and, you know, totally unseen world, Michael Heiser, this is like weird Christianity. And I love it. I love it. Actually, I've been, I've been <laughs> no, videos on it. that's true. But yes, you're right. So you're right. but people are gonna take this in a lot of different ways. And I think actually, that's exactly the kind of fruitful engagement that will you know that will test this and 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 probably i i suspect you know you'll hopefully you'll have some of the joy that i have with my channel in that you'll get a lot of new ideas and they'll test your ideas and you'll have to respond to them and i mean that's that's the fun of this game and it sounds like you already have that with your father to be able to go back and forth oh, yeah. and challenge each other and although at the same time it's always a little unnerving to to have this idea that is sort of like a, a child that you bring out to the world and then the world says ah I had a friend once who was a um, who was an early elementary teacher, and he used to describe to me how parents would come in for the first parent-teacher meeting, and they're just anxious to hear the teacher say, "Your child is the most brilliant, wonderful creation I've ever seen." And the kid, the teacher says, "Hey, your child's doing okay." So, what? He's our child. <laughs> so this kind of <laughs> testing is is. Oh, that's brutal! I never thought about it like that until just now. That's really sad. All, all children truly are special. Not not that that is relevant to the rest of this uh, pre pre presentation. <laughs> Maybe that should be edited out if I if I were the sort of person who edits his podcasts. But you know, it's rather difficult on the app that I use. It's really just easier to let things be and flow. Let's just be a little bit more Taoistic about about it, shall we? Is is kind of hard, but it's absolutely the best thing for. What I I love the way you. I mean, I've got huge, I got huge questions about this thing, but I love it. it I'm so high and open. That's part of the reason. But I love it in that this is a fresh idea. This is a, and and not only that, but you've nicely. I mean, you've, you've locked it into a C.S. Lewis analogy, which of course is definitely going to colonize me. But it's it's a boy. It just kind of it, it just kind of expands the mind, which is I think what you really need when a large significant public conversation sort of paints itself into a corner 
And so some fresh insight and some fresh wind and some fresh thinking and some honest thinking is is welcome. And, and that's what you're bringing to this. And so I, I, I dare bet some wonk out there, because right now on my channel, you've got all these people who are, you know, hot for orthodoxy and so are, you know, eagerly paging through church fathers and rummaging through ancient heresies. Someone's going to come up and say, ah, this is the and, and, and that I think will actually prompt you for some, oh, well, let me check out what they wrote, you know, you know, 1500 years ago about this. And I, I think it'll, I think it'll all make your arguments and your ideas better and stronger. So I, I love this. This, I, again, I said, I, I scrolled through your paper last night. And thought, Oh, this is fun. <laughs> it is fun. It's that's right. It's fun. And you know, um, uh, there's, there's several, let's say I have an, uh, an item, uh, let's say I have a, a itemized, I've itemized the, the, a bunch of implications here uh, of the, of what I've described to you. And I'd like to at least touch on them because I think you'll get a kick out of them um, and and find them interesting. Like, what, how do we interpret let this you know element of the Bible? If FEC, if we entertain the thought that something like FEC, which is what I call fallen earth creationism, is true. Um, so, uh, you would you like me to go through that? Yeah, yeah, do something. Give me something. Oh, okay, okay. So, if, if something like that's true, well, then you know there the title of the first man and the first woman, you know, the mother of all humans, the title that Eve's given. I claim in FEC that the fall was so bad, those titles were stripped of them, and they were stripped of them by placing them here 6,000 years ago, where now there's already humans here. You're not the first man in this creation. You are the first man that God created, and you are causally the human that gave rise to humanity. But in this fallen world, you will not be recognized as so. I mean, just think about what, what he just said. That's that's some seriously original theology. And, um, you know, there's there's a few other interesting tidbits that I found, you know, discovered later on uh, in Genesis. So, for example, Cain, when he was cast out away, God cast him away. He it, it says he he found a wife and a city and the 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 traditional record conciliation of that verse or interpretation of that verse is that well adam and eve had tons of kids so of course cain had a wife that was related to him there's there, you can't avoid it right well in my in fec he, cain avoids it cain cain you know possibly a son of god marries a daughter of a man uh and which brings me to my next uh item the uh chapter five in in genesis yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, okay <laughs> When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, there's a few interpretations on this verse. Oh, and, yeah. and, and the popular one is that, I think this is true, the, the, the current popular view is that the sons of God are, are fallen angels or, you know, some type of, yeah. you know, I, yeah. And I to, I, everyone always writes in Michael Heiser to me because, you know. I, I, I mean, and I, I know Michael Heiser. I haven't really got in depth with him because basically he's reading the Bible. That's what Michael Heiser is doing. And so you've got these these other divine beings. Well, who are these other divine beings? They're not God. Um, they're sort right. of gods. But how does you know? Right. There's, I mean, because when you really get into a lot of this stuff, things get weird quick. And what you're oh, doing yeah. is bringing a little bit of science into this weirdness, or maybe a little science fiction into this weirdness. And I think it's I think it's fun. I think it's provocative, and I think it's potentially fruitful. So, sure, yeah, the, honestly. Uh, 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 yeah, if it gets people discussing and chewing on these issues, that's what I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, but going back to uh, the Nephilim, 
the like I, we were saying, the 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 most popular view right now is that they were fallen angels that right. that that came into the daughters of men. But there is another interpretation, and if you go back and look at the the church fathers, there's a split. There are church fathers that don't believe that they were you know fallen angels. There are fathers that think that the sons of God refers to Sethites and that the daughters of men refers to Cainites, and that the you know Cain what Cain's line is not you know being given. Uh, not being recognized as a God lineage. And so that's a, that's a, that is, you know, back and forth. I can't off the top of my head. I can't remember, but there's, there's a few in each of those uh, uh, categories. And this is slightly different. This is what I, I guess I'm implying here is that the sons of God refers to people who descended from Adam, who entered our creation from the very good creation. And that the daughters of men is referring to evolved up man. And the, the, the verse that I, there's a verse that I skipped that is very uh, 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 crucial. In chapter four, it says, and men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, wait a second. Adam, you know, when did they not call on the name of the Lord, you know, previously? Well, maybe that's referring to evolved humans. This is when these men began to call upon the name of the Lord, when the sons of God now coexist with them. That is pretty wild. I'm going to take a quick pause here and come back in a second. All right, we're back. Apologies for the interruption. And because we already know God, uh, Adam and, and his descendants call on the name of the Lord. And so that's just a way you can interpret that that verse. Um, the, the, this, 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 this uh, FEC has uh, implications on the flood. And, you know, uh, you know, is the flood global? Well, I would argue for a regional flood, which I think is a popular view. But there's an interesting tie that FE, or there's an interesting piece that uh, FEC gives on the regional flood perspective, which is that the 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 goal that God had in in removing everyone but Noah, all of Adam, all of the descendants of Adam except for Noah, is accomplished with a regional flood if something like FEC is true. And I mean, there's no need to wipe out the Aborigines in Papua New Guinea uh, six thousand years ago uh, if you know, if they're not committing the horrible evil that's spoken about in, in, the, in the fifth chapter of Genesis. Or if, in fact, they're simply, oh, gosh, this, I, I don't know. I don't know if you have any understanding of just, I mean, I can see Jewish, I can see people, I can see Jewish communities get really interested in something like this because some of these valences, some of these valences sort of gain resonance with all sorts of ancient theologies. Oh, I, I know. It's I fascinating. Know. It's, <laughs> I, I mean, I, it, I, I think I understand what Paul Vanderclay is getting at here because there is a tendency among all the peoples of the world to regard themselves as uh, you know, truly human and everyone else as in some sense, I don't know, merely human-like. Um, the, the name, if, if you look at the names of, of various tribes, for example, very often what those names translate to is something very generic, just like the people. We're the people, you know, even though, you know, every other tribe also considers itself the people. Um, and, uh, you know, what if there is a sort of, and I hope this doesn't come across as anti-Semitic, um, uh, but, but, you know, what if there is a perspective among certain Jews that sort of they're, they, they are the people. Um, if, if you, if you catch my meaning, and on uh, FEC, the reason might be something like they're the ones who are descended from Adam, um, who is sort of like not the first human, but the first meta-human. 
yeah anyway obviously this is this is um uh, highly fraught territory but nonetheless interesting and i'm not trying to uh, what i'm not trying to attribute views to people uh when when they don't actually hold those views i'm just talking about you know some some rather unusual um uh implications of the fallen earth uh, creation uh, theory i'm not trying to imply that anyone's an anti-semite here or that uh you know any jews are what anti-gentile um i'm just you know talking about some some, uh, shall we say, interesting uh, issues that this theory raises. Hey, yeah. Um, so, well, like, like, to, I mean, along that line, uh, yes, the, the flood account, there is this element, and this is interesting, with God said, man shall not live forever. My spirit will not abide in them forever. Their years will be 120 years. I suggest that the reason the ages decreased is simply from interbreeding with evolved man who lived only 70, 80 years. And when you're interbreeding with, you know, when you live 900 and your, your spouse lives to be 80, your offspring are probably going to be somewhere in between. And so, uh, yes, I mean, you know, in some ways, some of the things I'm describing to you are clever, but you know, the interesting thing about some of these things I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I did not discover these, these potential clever ways to view some of these elements until after I had thought until after my dad and I, I had thought of the idea, right, just referring to what's happening with the fall in Genesis. Right? So um, uh, there's another important point that I think I should make. With, there, there's evidence, or there's support. There's, there's biblical support for the idea that there are two creations. We as Christians wait for a new creation. That's what, that's what the Bible tells us. That's what the New Testament tells us. Oh, and, you know, there's an idea that I should touch on, because it was a point that Weston himself made to me when I talked to him, that... That on the on FEC, it's not the case that only uh, the Jewish people are descended from Adam, because you know, strictly speaking, there would be the uh, who the the the, the Hamites, the J J Japhethites, yeah, because there's Shem, Ham, and, and Japheth, right? So the the Shemites, the Hamites, and the Japhethites. So so there would be some other people, maybe the Shemites, or I don't know, the Arabs, or maybe maybe the 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 descendants of these three individuals are found all over the globe. I, I'm not sure. But at any rate, what FEC is saying is that not every human um, uh, is a descendant of Adam, or at least not every human was a descendant of Adam at the time that Adam entered our creation. Because, you know, Adam didn't pre-exist himself within this creation. So, you know, that would have been impossible. Okay, let's, let's jump back in that we await a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. Now wait, why? If this is the very good creation, surely all you need to do is reconcile it uh, and, and, and Christ would reconcile it. But maybe this, th maybe we as humans do not know the extent to which the fall permeated our existence, permeated the creation. And um, there's an, uh, I'm segueing into my next, my next, uh, I guess, clever tidbit, which is that Moses is sort of viewed as the author of, of uh, you know, the Pentateuch, or, or at least Genesis. And, well, yeah. And um, in my mind, I, I'm going to paint a picture here, and this is all hypothetical, but this is how I imagine Genesis being written, assuming something like FEC is true. Moses is sitting around with his think tank, and these are guys are the, the top guys in, uh, that, that know what's going on. You know, they, they, they remember, they know what their fathers told them, they know what their grandfathers told them, and so on. So they're putting together all the ideas. They're like, well, what do we know about the first things, you know? 
And so Moses is like, you know, he might know the most, but he needs these other guys to put in anecdotes. Well, as in, through this collaborative effort, this collaborative effort was only achieved because Adam himself successfully passed on the story of the fall. Okay. And the reason that's that, that, that might be important, let's say to FEC is look at, look at the description of the fall. It doesn't say explicitly, you know, another ad snuck up on me. My apologies. I mean, you see science describes things that are clearly you would describe as not good or fallen. And yet they're not described in the Bible. One of the criticisms to my idea that, you know, someone might say is these things, what much of what you're saying is just not in the Bible. Well, maybe here's why Adam, Adam lost the perspective that God had. Adam left the perspective. He left the garden, let's say, leaving the leaving along the banks of the river that flowed out of Eden. You know, maybe he's just strolling along with, with Eve along the Euphrates. And he notices when he turns back, there's not, not only is there no garden, there's just a bunch of tributaries that, that lead to, you know, uh, uh, into the hills. And um, he, he, he doesn't know where, where Eden went, but that doesn't matter. From his personal perspective, God made him. God made him. So when he sees some weirdo uh, that only lives 80 years old, maybe, that's doing something totally foreign to him, he doesn't need to reconcile that with his mind. He knows for sure that God made him and he was made from his rib. Okay. So when he passed this story down, him and the people around him would be insulated much for a while of, of the larger creation. And so they wouldn't describe what happened in this, in the fallen creation. They would only describe what happened in the creation that they lived in, in the very good creation. And then that, yes, they could maybe describe things as they saw them when they entered the, the fallen creation. So we lose a perspective, but it's because the story came from Adam, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Adam's perspective. Yeah. So I found that refreshing. I, to be honest with you, let me, let me, let me just say, I, I did, like many young men, go through a, uh, a period where, where uh, I didn't, I was less, um, I, I took less of a traditional view. I just did. I needed to. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah. I was, I, I was um, um, deep into the sciences. And I just thought, you know, this seems I, I, I had the thing, you know, a Francis Collins book on my on my uh, bookshelf and, and, and other guys like that, other intellectuals that were sort of science, you know, uh, guys, you know, just immersed in science. Yeah. And those guys are, you know, I, I um, so it's odd for me to say that that, you know, here I am describing or maybe somehow the picture is that I'm trying to oh reconcile, con you know, this traditional view that, you know, many people might view outdated. But I'm not, I'm not, that's not where the spirit of this idea is coming from. The spirit of this idea is just, you know, fun uh, or, or, well, it's fun for me, but, but really just fascination. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. Fascination yeah. is really where it's coming from. And so I'm, I guess I just want to say that just in case, you know, you know, uh, I'm not married to this idea. It, I, I, I really would just want to argue that at the very least, see this survey of ideas, younger, older, theistic evolution, intelligent design, um, this, how, why not this as an option at least? Yeah, I, I I love it. I, I I don't. I see huge. Like I said, I see huge issues with it. And so my, my point here. No, 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 no. Yeah, I know. Yeah. My point here is not to debate it at all. I want to allow you to present no. it because I want to get it out there because I want people to play with it. Because the point that you just finished making, which is something that I immediately thought of, is well, that's right. Because another creation is coming, and in some ways, we we've got issues at both ends of the Bible. We we're not quite right. sure what's before it, and we certainly don't know what's after it. And again, almost everything, all the descriptions of before are evocative much more than descriptive. All the descriptions of the new heavens and the new earth, they're all evocative much more than descriptive. You know, lion will lay down with the lamb and you no know, marriage or giving in marriage. And, you know, I mean, 
it's and so this very much gets into oh, it gets into apocalyptic. It gets into it gets into. No, let me. I just have to ask you one thing before we're out of time. Okay. Okay. This is important. Are you into psychedelics? No. I didn't I, think I, so. I and that's really important to say because I know where this is going to go. Right now, out in the broader world, it's like, oh, the dude definitely took some mushrooms. He he, he took no. some ayahuasca. Now he's got new. And I knew, I, I know, I thought where this dude is from. No, no, no. I don't think he's been on the mushrooms or the ayahuasca. This is this is a scientist looking <laughs> at the Bible, thinking creative thoughts, and saying, hey, right. here's an idea we can play with. Let's see how. Let's see. And and in many ways, I think. That's sort of how theology should work. Well, here's an idea. Well, let's run it through. Let's run it through the exactly. Bible and see and right. see what other things illuminate. And right. I, I just find I just find this kind of thing just utterly fun. And well, I want well, I want more people to play with you. That's what I want. Okay. Well, let me make uh, one last point that might be a good way, like a good thought to sort of uh, end on. Okay. And you know that is just when 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 um, Paul's describing Adam, you know he's mirroring Adam and, and Christ. Christ, you know, we don't, we aren't privy to all the wonderful effects of Christ's uh, sacrifice. We are saved as Christians, but we still live in the fallen world. You know, the the effect of Christ happened in an event in his, or this the, the sacrifice that Christ made happened in a at a at a point in time. But the effect that Christ's sacrifice had is spans time. It, you know, it's it's it, it transcends time. So does, in my mind, Adam's fall. Adams, the, the, the effects of the fall also do the same thing. And so I guess I just want to mirror that like Paul does because so it doesn't sound so foreign, you know, this, this idea that maybe if, you know, just like we can't see the, if all the, all the fruits of, from that, 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 that are given to us due to Christ's sacrifice. Uh, and we also can't see maybe properly all the, 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 the effects that the fall had. And as Christ left this, as Christ transcends this, time limited existence adam similarly entered this time limited existence so i and yeah. again i see it on the other end too in many ways creation 2.0 begins on easter and in yes. some ways yes. you know christ pulls us through himself into the new creation so oh yeah i i this is so much Okay, so so, so maybe we'll have creation number one and creation number two. This God is number one, God number two. Which I'm I use kidding, creation, the resurrected Christ is creation two point <laughs> But but you're basically Everywhere. saying, what was what was creation point five or what was you know on the uh, and uh, there is again there is a huge history of imaginative thinking, especially before the modern age, in terms of you know this is this is why this is why the limitation of modern thinking has been so crippling on theology because it just put us in this little iron box. And at the same time, it limited heresies. So, I mean, it's, 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 this is just too much fun. Anyway, well, I'm sorry. I've got, okay. I got somebody no, waiting, okay. waiting for the next one. So um, I will send you this and you get whatever things you want ready to be put in the notes and we'll wait to publish okay. this until you're ready because I okay. want, I, I want you to have some of my joy in terms of the um, using YouTube as the third lobe of the third lobe of your consciousness. Congress. So, okay. Okay. Awesome. Sounds great. It's great talking to you, Wes. Wonderful. Take you care. too. All right. Bye -bye. You too. Okay. So first of all, bravo, Weston. Uh, you and your father have a standing invitation um, to discuss your ideas uh, at any length that you want to uh, on my humble platform and on Randos United to the extent that I'm affiliated with that YouTube channel. Um, 
I, I said earlier that there's one more reason why I found uh, FEC compelling. And now that I'm drawing near the end of this episode, I'm just going to lay my cards on the table and say that that additional reason is Bigfoot. Okay, I'm sorry, I couldn't resist grabbing some cheesy uh, record-scratching sound effect. Um, obviously, uh, that requires a bit of explanation. Let me back up. Um, as far as I can see, there, there is an almost methodological problem in supposing that, you know, a given religion, uh, you know, let's, let's stick with Christianity, there's, 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 there's a methodological problem involved in supposing that a given religion is true, and yet all uh, reports of paranormal phenomena are just hearsay, you know, because you, you can't trust that because people just make stuff up. You know, whereas the argument for the miracles of a religion being true, you know, are essentially, you know, people are at least somewhat trustworthy, and why would so many people... Uh, lie about miracles. Yeah, maybe a lot of them were made up, but at least some of these claims of miracles should presumptively be seen as true. And I regard that as sort of a, a valid argument, and that's why I don't really buy into the the Humean skepticism against miracles, because while it certainly makes a powerful case for dis dismissing any individual claim of a miracle, um, it it doesn't really provide you with grounds for dismissing all claims um, of, of a miracle. I think it would be implausible if um, every single claim of a miracle turned out to be false. But by the same token, I, I consider that it would be quite implausible if every single claim of a you know paranormal phenomenon or sighting turned out to be false. Now, within the paranormal, um, if I'm not misusing that term, I suppose one can distinguish between the supernatural and the, the potentially natural, but just, you know, unknown or undescribed. You know, ghosts are supernatural and um, they can, you know, without too much um, effort, I suppose, be accommodated within the worldview of, of Christianity. Although very often what you'll find is Christians believe that ghosts are actually, they're demons. They're not really the spirits of departed ancestors or uh, historical figures or anything like that. And um, aliens is another one. Um, aliens, uh, well, you know, the way we normally conceive of them is that they are natural beings. They, they do, they are subject to the laws of physics and that they basically can do more than we can, not because of magical powers, but because they have um, advanced technology. Um, although, you know, a lot of Christians would consider uh, aliens to be demons too. And, they're not really on um, bad footing when when they when they you know, put put that idea forward, and and I I think the reason why is that very often in reports of alien encounters, alien abductions, the aliens are reported to hightail it away when uh, the name of Jesus is invoked and people you know fearfully pray in Jesus's name for protection. What's going on with that? You know, if these are you know purely natural beings um uh or physical beings who who you know are bound by the laws of physics and just you know have more power than we do because they have superior technology why are they so afraid of the primitive religions 
of this uh, you know planet that they uh, in that they visit for the purposes of scientific experimentation. Although it's like, don't they have enough knowledge about human physiology and biology that they could obtain it without using like uh, uh, rectal probes or whatever uh, unaccompanied by anesthesia? You know, as the reports so commonly mentioned. Maybe these are just demons torturing humans. Who knows? Anyway, you've got ghosts. You got things like ghosts. You got things like aliens. Um, you've also got things like skinwalkers. If you Google the Skinwalker Ranch, there's a rather disturbing amount of actual evidence for you know paranormal phenomena occurring at the Sherman Ranch in in Utah. And then, of course, also you have Bigfoot. And the thing about Bigfoot is there have been a great many uh, sightings of him or purported sightings of Bigfoot, different places, um, you know, both within North America and I think in other parts of the world, though maybe in other parts of the world he goes by different names, the, the Yeti. And um, there isn't too much scientific evidence for any creature like this. There is scientific evidence of a uh, large ape, Gigantopithecus, uh, whose remains I think were found in China. But there's no real uh, strong reason to believe that Gigantopithecus still exists. If only because, you know, if, if Bigfoot or some giant ape were as widespread as the reports make him out to be, it seems likely that at some point we would have found something. We would have found hair samples, we would have found stool samples, bones that seem um, a little bit more recent than those of Gigantopithecus, etc. If, if Bigfoot, you know, if, if human testimony can be trusted, then, you know, we need to trust all the, uh, or at least some of the uh, reports of Bigfoot sightings. But at the same time, if there have been that many sightings, how come there's no hard evidence. A lot of people who um, study Bigfoot, who are Bigfoot hunters, um, they, they believe that Bigfoot is extra dimensional, that he can sort of enter into other dimensions of reality um, at the drop of a hat, uh, so to speak. And, um, and indeed, there are many reports of Bigfoot sort of suddenly disappearing. And also of Bigfoot having things like like red eyes, bioluminescent eyes, um, and, and accompanied by a, a sulfurous smell, which the, the skinwalkers often are. So, you know, in other words, if you, if you look at all the, the Bigfoot sightings, that what you find is not, you don't always find um, a, a picture or a depiction of a, of a wholly natural being. There is a way in which um, the Bigfoot sightings seem themselves to shade into uh, treatment of a paranormal phenomenon. It's if, if Bigfoot is real, in my opinion, it's highly unlikely that it's just some kind of naturally evolved, you know, population of ape-like beings that are out there and just really good at evading human attention. If Bigfoot is real, to me, it seems more likely that there is some other dimension or dimensions into which they are able to uh, disappear, that they can, you know, come in and come out of them. Uh, whenever they choose. So insofar as fallen earth creationism makes explanatory reference to other dimensions, you know, I, I find that to be an interesting uh, 
point of convergence <laughs> with uh, a lot of the, the Bigfoot claims. Now, hopefully I'm not making fallen earth creationism uh, less plausible by associating it with Bigfoot. Um, but if you ask me, the case for Bigfoot is at least intriguing. And um, there are claims that um, audio uh, files of Bigfoot have been obtained, that, you know, audio recordings of, of Bigfoot have been obtained, I want to say in the 1970s, the so-called Sierra Sounds, by uh, captured by Ron Moorhead and Al Berry. Where was this? Uh, they were in the Sierra Nevada mountains in Eastern California. These sounds, which I'm going to play us out to, are, are highly interesting. Um, as far as analyzing this recording, I, I might even be said to have some nominal level of expertise because I'm a speech-language pathologist. And the sounds that are captured um, in this recording, to me, they don't... I mean, I suppose they could have been created through human imitation, but to me, that's not what it sounds like. To me, it sounds like these sounds were produced by vocal tracts that are much larger than the human vocal tract. So what am I saying there? Am I saying that the sounds are, that they have a super low frequency, a super low pitch? No, not exactly. The difference that I'm talking about is a lot like the difference between playing a set of high frequency notes on a violin and playing notes um, on those same frequencies um, on a cello. It can be the same notes, the same frequencies, but it'll sound a lot different on a cello. The sound will be more resonant, perhaps darker is the word. It will attest to the fact that um, the sounds are resonating within a much larger um, chamber, um, even though they are um, at the same frequency as sounds you might play on a violin. If for an example of what I'm talking about, just listen to pretty much any cello concerto where, where the cello, uh, the cellist will end up playing some uh, very high frequency notes low down on the cello's neck. And you sort of wonder, well, you know, why wouldn't they have had just a, a violin play that part? But I suppose if nothing else, it's an opportunity for the instrumentalist to display his or her skills. So yeah, um, to me, these sounds do not sound human. I suppose Bigfoot could also be demons too, but you know, if they're sort of extra dimension, well, if they're, if they are demons, if they're supernatural, they can sort of appear and disappear at will as, as is implied by an extra dimensional conception of Bigfoot, then maybe there's not too much of a difference either way, but it would be some vindication of, uh, you know, claims of Bigfoot sightings that maybe they were actually seeing something, even if, if it was not a strictly a natural uh, creature. Okay, so without further ado, I'm going to play us out to the uh, Sasquatch Sierra sounds captured by Ron Moorhead and Al Berry, an, an appropriately supernormal, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, uh, an appropriately supernormal note uh, to end this episode on.
quick word of explanation you hear the the voices of the the hunters um uh calling back out to the bigfoots and sort of imitating them trying to draw them into uh conversation or, or communication That right there doesn't sound too much like Bigfoot. That sounds like, I don't know, a moose or a caribou or something. Although it could be a Bigfoot imitating one of those. Who knows? Those were the Sierra sounds. Um, all links will be um, added in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening, and I'll catch you next time.